Father, when we open up your word, your Bible, we remember once again that it is the revelation of yourself, of your holiness, of your righteousness, of your justice, your expression of love and having sent your son Jesus into the world to save sinners such as us. When we open up your word, we can learn about you and how you have solved the problem of sin in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how we might live out our purpose in this world to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Father, I pray that this morning, that's what this time would be about as we look to you and your word and what you have to say to us. Challenge us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us, encourage us, Lord, that we would be people who would walk away changed. We ask you these things in your name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is our text for this morning, verses 1 through 5. The title of our morning's message is Treasuring Christ Together. Treasuring Christ Together. And we are here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I want to read this great portion of Scripture for us. Colossians 2, 1 says... For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Well, this morning we begin chapter 2 of this great, great letter. We have been in Colossians chapter 1 and just finished it after two or three years. Okay, it hasn't been that long, right? Six months, six months. I'm trying to see if you guys are paying attention. We've only been in there six months. Come on. <clears throat> I think six or seven months. But we do enter chapter two of Colossians uh, this morning, and it's been a joy. I just want to encourage you and affirm you and commend you. It's been such a joy to hear uh, in conversations and emails and texts about how the Lord has been challenging you through this great letter and His Word. Uh, to think about just your attitude, your perspective, and just your priorities in life. I want to just encourage you, and I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God has used His Word in your life to do that. And I pray that we would continue to do that, encourage one another through the book of Colossians, or via the book of Colossians, uh, encourage one another with what God is doing. And if there's something that should stand out to us as we finished uh, and looked at chapter 1 of Colossians, is that Paul loves this church, does he not? Paul loves this church. But the reason why he loves this church on a deeper level and even more significant is because it is the fact that Paul loves the church because he loves Christ and he treasures Christ. Because Christ is Paul's greatest treasure. Then the bride of Christ, who is the church, the people of God, is loved by Paul deeply. For such love for the church, 
flows from a heart that considers Christ of infinite worth. And therefore, because we love our Redeemer, because we love our Christ, our exalted Christ, we will be those who love those whom He loves, His people. And this is at the core of the problem with the Colossians. They needed a reminder of Christ's infinite worth, for they were not treasuring Christ above all things. They are being influenced by false teachers, as we've seen, who are devaluing Christ, who are putting an emphasis on other things, such as vain philosophies and rituals and angelic beings and many diversions devoid of Christ. Christ seemed no longer sufficient, no longer indispensable, but simply an add-on to their Christianity. They were in danger of no longer treasuring Christ of holding them up for the infinite, glorious one that He is. And beloved, that's always a danger in any particular Christian or in any church, including our own, where Christ can be assumed rather than treasured and and that He is the focal point of everything that the church does, even in the way that we love one another and treasure Christ together. All of this is very concerning to Paul, of course. Very concerning to him. He's so concerned that in this packed section of verses 1-5 through of chapter 2, he's going to express his deep concern for these believers, for this church, and for others who are being influenced as well. Paul's concern is a genuine concern. Paul's concern is a heartfelt concern for them, as we're going to see. And Paul is not afraid to pour out his heart of concern for these Christians. He loves them. And he wants them to treasure Christ above all things. The question is, and that I want to answer this morning is, what can we learn from Paul's deep concern in verses 1-5 through of Colossians chapter 2? What can we learn of his great love for these believers? What things are here that we might emulate in this man's heart for these people that we may in turn lovingly apply toward one another in the way that we interact with one another. Because Paul expresses himself pretty openly to them here in these five verses. Pours out his heart before them in these expressions of his loving concern. These are genuine, heartfelt expressions that we should cultivate in our own hearts toward one another. That we may together treasure Christ and not be led away from Christ as individuals or as a corporate body. And there are four expressions here of Paul's loving concern that I want us to take note of, okay? First of all, I want you to take note in verse 1, the struggle of Paul's concern. The struggle of Paul's concern. And thus the struggle that we should as believers also cultivate in our own hearts for our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says in verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for all those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Paul gets very personal with the Colossians here. He says, I want you to know something. I want you to know that I have a deep struggle on your behalf. And not only for the Colossians, but also for those who are at Laodicea, a sister church in a prominent city some 10 to 12 miles away in what was known as the Lycus Valley. And then he says, not only for you and for those at Laodicea, but for all those who have not personally seen my face. 
And I think he's talking here about the church at Hierapolis, another sister church in the Lycus Valley that he mentions in chapter 4 and verse 13 of Colossians. So all three of these churches, Colossae, Laodicea, and the church at Hierapolis, were churches that Paul is concerned about. He's struggling. These are churches that Paul had not personally, physically been seen by Paul. He had not seen them in the flesh from what we know. And I want you to notice that even though Paul has not personally, physically seen these people, that he is deeply concerned for them, inescapably concerned for them. He tells them, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. This struggle is great. It is continual. It is an ongoing struggle. The word that he uses for struggle is, is from the same word for striving in chapter 1, verse 29. It signifies this intense, deep agony. And as I mentioned last week, the word was often used to describe the intense agony that athletes underwent to prepare for and compete at an athletic event. It was used to describe their hard work, the excruciating discipline, the agony that went into this. Paul greatly struggled, greatly agonized for the church of God. And we've seen some of his his heart for these people and his striving to the point of exhaustion. He says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 9, that, that he prays for them constantly, unceasingly. They're always in his thoughts. In fact, he uses the same word for agony to speak of Epaphras in chapter 4 and verse 12, who also as a partner of Paul, he says in chapter 4 verse 12 of Epaphras, is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. So both Paul and Epaphras, his partner in the gospel, agonize for these people in their prayers. This agony for the church of God, he also suffered in his own body. We've seen in chapter 1, verse 24, that Paul tells them that he actually rejoices in his sufferings on their behalf. And he can say that, by the way, even sitting in jail when he writes the letter to the Colossians. He's sitting in jail and he can say, I rejoice in your sufferings if those sufferings lead to you being conformed into the image of Christ. Verses 28 and 29. He rejoices in his sufferings. In chapter 1, verse 29, he says he labors to the point of exhaustion, agonizing for God's people according to the strength of Christ. All for the target goal of them becoming like Christ. And the question is, why, Paul? Why agonize for people you have never even personally met? Why do we even care when we're told just a few minutes ago that we have a team going to the Philippines when we've never seen those brothers and sisters in Christ in that foreign country personally, most of us. Why should we be concerned for them? Why should we have this agonizing struggle in our prayers and also be willing to give our resources for the purpose of the ministry that's going to be taking place in the Philippines? Why should we do that? Why does Paul agonize for people that he's never seen? Well, I'll tell you. Because this is what genuine, heartfelt love for Christ and for His people looks like, beloved. You don't choose suffering, agony, to labor to the point of exhaustion, to toil for other people, unless you're motivated by love for Christ and for those whom Christ loves. You don't choose this unless you love Christ and you love His people. I remember a few years ago, 
working at a secular job at a laboratory in Van Nuys. And I came to my uh, boss, and she already knew all those years that I was a believer and that I was heading into the ministry. And I finally met with her, and I told her, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the job. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm going to go to seminary, and I'm going to be working as a security officer somewhere else. And she could not understand why I would do that. Why I would leave a potentially promising job in a laboratory to go be a part of the Christian ministry. She could not understand that. Why go to seminary and be a pastor, she said, when there's a lot of money here for you if you stick around. And the essence of what I said to her was this. It is all worthwhile because Jesus died for his people and he loves his people and I want to serve his people. That's why it's worthwhile for any of us, beloved. That's why any of us would be willing to make the choices that we make because of the fact that we love Christ and we love his people. He purchased his church with his own blood. And so it makes it all worthwhile, does it not? We make joyful, willing choices that have a price because we love Christ and we love those whom Jesus, our Lord and Savior, loves. So this love for Christ and for his people is evident in Paul's life and ministry. And so his struggle is very real. His agonizing is very real. And he's willing to put his actions behind his words. Paul is not simply giving lip service to the fact that he loves and treasures Christ. No. The way that he lives his life, spent for Christ and for his people, matches his profession that Christ is Lord and Savior of his life, beloved. I wonder how many of us can say with Paul, I struggle, I agonize, I'm deeply concerned for God's people. I wonder how many of us can say that, that we agonize for the people of God in prayer. I wonder how many of us are exhausted because of the service that we're rendering to our Lord and our Master and we're seeking to do it joyfully. Not even having time for ourselves. Because we are so concerned for the people of God and we want to serve the people of God because we love our King Jesus. I wonder how many of us can say that we're truly laying down our lives for the church, for the people of God. Those for whom Christ died. See, many of us can say and should say that we are laboring to the point of exhaustion for our individual biological families. And we should be able to say that. That is our first responsibility. But how many of us can express the same degree of concern and care for the people of God? How many of us can do the same as an outflow of our ministry in our homes? We, are, we have the same level of concern and care for the people of God. How many of us can say that? I want to tell you something. This is not, Paul doesn't struggle and agonize this way for people simply because he's an apostle. And that's for the apostolic ministry. Kempis, of course, Paul was an apostle. John the Baptist was not an apostle, but he was a crazy dude 2,000 years ago. I mean, who does that stuff? Go into the wilderness, right? And do what John the Baptist was doing. Of course. These guys were nuts. They should say they're struggling. They should say they agonize this way because Paul was an apostle. Listen, I want to tell you 
that this kind of concern and care for the people of God, because you love Christ and you love His church, is normal Christianity. It is normal Christianity. This is not a radical call to be super elite Christians. This is normal Christianity. That we labor to the point of exhaustion for Christ and for His people, beloved. And sure, we will go through periods of dryness and discouragement and even sense coldness in our love for Christ and for others. Each of us can go through that, beloved. Even as pastors, we go through that. But the pattern of our lives should be this heartfelt, loving, concerned, expressed in struggling for the people of God precisely because we love and we treasure Christ. It should be the pattern to struggle this way. Well, what is the purpose of Paul's struggle of his toil for them? What is the purpose? Because Paul's struggle was connected to his desire for these people. And that's the second point here. The desire of Paul's concern. I want us to see this in verses 2 and 3. The desire of Paul's concern. He says in verse 2, That, or in order that, this is why he struggles, in order that their hearts may be encouraged. And how will this encouragement come, Paul? Having been knit together in love and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here in verses 2 and 3, we find Paul's desire for these people. His desire for these people. And it is a threefold desire for these people. These are subpoints under your second point. First of all, Paul desires, as we should, for our fellow brothers and sisters, that they would be encouraged. He desires that these believers would be encouraged. He says that, or in order that their hearts may be encouraged. This is why I struggle. This is why I agonize to the point of exhaustion for your encouragement. Why does Paul agonize according to the strength of Christ? Toil the way that he does. It is that they would be encouraged. Talk about sacrifice. I suffer Colossians and others who have not personally seen my face simply so that you would be strengthened, that you would be encouraged. That beautiful word, encouraged, there is the word from parakaleo in its plural form, literally means to call alongside. To call alongside. The Holy Spirit, as you know, is the paraclete, right? The paraclete, the one call alongside of Christians. What does the Spirit do? In his ministry to believers. He is the one called alongside to teach. To illumine the mind of believers to the truth. To comfort. To strengthen. And of course to encourage believers. Here the word can either mean strengthen or encourage. Either one is a good translation. And a good um, meaning in light of its context. Paul desires that these believers, plural by the way, as a community, that they would be encouraged in their hearts. In the New Testament, the heart is the person's central control system. It is the seat of the mind, of the will, of human emotion. 
The heart is the core and the center of the human being. And everything flows from our hearts, words, and actions. Paul wants these believers to be encouraged, to be strengthened from within. Because if they are strengthened from within, then it will lead to strong living that honors Christ and that treasures Christ. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and following for the Ephesian believers. He prays that they might be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, and that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and length of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Why does he pray that for them? That they would be strengthened from within. Because then in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to talk about conduct. And that conduct is driven and flows from transformation from within, right? Strengthening encouragement from within by the Spirit of God. Well, what's the matter, Colossians? What's the matter, believers? Why are they not encouraged? Well, they are being told by false teachers that Christ is not sufficient for all of their needs, that Christ is not who Epaphras has told them that he was, perhaps, that Christ is a created being, and perhaps the greatest created being, but a created being at that, that Christ is not necessarily indispensable for them, but some kind of add-on to their Christianity, that Christ is important, but certainly not supreme, not preeminent, and not sufficient for everything. This dangerous thinking will certainly not encourage any believer, any believer. Listen, beloved, your spiritual encouragement and your spiritual strength and your spiritual vitality and vibrancy is directly connected to your view of your Savior and your Redeemer. If you have a small Jesus, you as a pattern will be a very discontent, very discouraged Christian. If you have a very low view of Jesus. Problems will be too big for you. Everything will be a situation where you will fall apart when there's trials in your life. Your struggle with sin seems insurmountable. It is too big. You won't go to the Spirit of God for help. Your view of God, of His Son, is very, very small. Your trials will be so, so big for you. Why would you go to the one who is able to sustain you if you don't really believe that? This is why Paul wants to correct their view of Christ. He wants them to know that Christ is supreme so that they would go to him and he he is their sufficiency for all things. And he is to be the treasured one for them, individually and corporately. So Paul's desire is their encouragement in Christ. That's his desire. The question is, how will this come, Paul? How will this come? How will this encouragement come? And I love what he says next. Secondly, Paul's desire is also that they would be unified in love. He desires that they would be unified in love. Notice what he says in verse 2. He adds, this is how encouragement will come. He says, having been knit together in love. How Will the encouragement that Paul desires for these believers come? It will come through unified, loving relationships as people, these believers, walk in loving unity next to one another. 
The verb here means to bring together, to be united together. Paul uses the same verb in chapter 2 and verse 19 when he says that the body is supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments. Listen to me. Encouragement in Christ does not happen in isolation, but in community with other like-minded fellow believers. Encouragement in Christ does not happen, beloved, in isolation, but in community. And what is the unifying, binding glue in the believer's life, if you will, for the people of God? It is love. Love. We are welded into unity by love. In the face of opposition, in the form of false teaching, Paul wants them to know that they need to stick together, to be people who are glued or welded together in love. Love has been very prominent in chapter 1, has it not? Just in chapter 1 alone, Paul has highlighted the importance of love. He has praised the Colossian believers in chapter 1 verse 4 for their love for all the saints. A love that is empowered by the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 and verse 8. Your love in the Spirit, Paul says. I praise God for you. That you love all the saints. And this love is empowered by the Spirit of God. This is a love made possible by the Father's salvation through God's beloved Son, chapter 1 and verse 13. Literally, the Son of His love. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul instructs them, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love has been so prominent in chapter 1. Paul tells them that they must be unified in love for one another. Now, as you know, there are so many misconceptions of what true biblical love is. The world's conception of love is a very emotional one, a whatever makes you feel good type of love, a love shown to others based upon what you get out of a relationship. It's very conditioned based upon what you get out of it. A love that is devoid of the truth is worldly kind of love. But biblical love is the opposite, is it not? Biblical love is never devoid of the truth. Paul is not telling the Colossians that in the face of opposition, to simply get along, to stick together, who cares about the truth, and call that love. That's not what he's saying. That's why I love what he says next in verse 2. Their unity is based upon an understanding of the truth. He adds in verse 2, note, and attaining to all the wealth, and then literally, of the full assurance of understanding. And attaining to all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding. One pastor commentator has put it this way. The wealth which consists of assurance or confidence such as understanding brings one. Understanding in the Christian life is such a beautiful thing, isn't it? To understand is to be able to put together the facts and information in your mind and then having understood those facts, being able to draw conclusions and see relationships. Have you ever had an aha moment in your life? You ever have those? What do we mean by that? The aha moment. It's that moment when you understand something, right? 
Aha, I see it. I get it. I'm putting two and two together. I've connected the dots. What do we say? I finally understand how something works. Beloved, this is in essence what Paul wants for them here. But in relation to the truth, because when they finally understand the truth concerning Christ, that in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, there is assurance and confidence and certainty and conviction. In fact, the wealth that he mentions in verse 2, the wealth that Paul is talking about here, is assurance, confidence, certainty, and conviction of the truth. What Paul is after here is that they develop deep theological convictions of the truth because once you develop deep, sound, biblical, theological convictions concerning Christ in His infinite glory, these convictions will change the way that you think and the way that you lead your life. This is why Paul prayed in chapter 1 and verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays this way because he knows, and you and I know, that when you fully understand the truth of God and Christ in His infinite glory, then we are going to be willing to die for those truths, are we not? To give our lives to our treasured Christ and serve Him. You know those truths are yours because you're willing to make life decisions based upon those truths you have come to understand and you will lead your life in accordance with what glorifies the exalted Christ. See, these believers needed to develop deep-seated convictions. And having understood the truth, they would not succumb to false teaching and they would treasure Christ together. And not be diverted away from Christ to things that are peripheral. So Paul's desire for loving unity was not stripped from a conviction concerning the truth about Christ. Now, these convictions, which come from a right understanding of the truth, are not just based upon some general abstract truths. They are directed toward a right understanding of Christ as the all-sufficient one. That is what Paul is getting at here. He doesn't just want them to understand and arrive at general abstract truths, convictions about those things. He wants all of that to lead them to Christ, to treasure Christ for His infinite worth and glory so that it impacts their life. So thirdly, his desire is that they treasure Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. His desire is that they treasure Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. Look at what he says in verse 2. He adds, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself. If you have the New American Standard Version, the words resulting and that is and Himself are not in the original. But I like the, the insertion of these words in italics because they help pinpoint who Paul is talking about here. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about Christ, an understanding of Christ, a conviction concerning Christ. Follow with me as I summarize for you to this point, okay? This is what Paul is saying. Paul personally, intensely, deeply agonizes for believers whom he has never personally seen that they would be encouraged. 
as they walk in loving unity and in deep-seated convictions concerning the glory of Christ. And these life-changing convictions are all rooted in Christ, who is to be their all-sufficiency. Paul personally, intensely, deeply agonizes for these believers whom he has never personally seen, that they would be encouraged as they walk in loving unity and in deeply seated convictions. And these life-changing convictions are rooted in Christ, who is to be their all-sufficiency in everything. That's what Paul is getting at. One commentator has written about about verse 2, this quote, Paul is piling up words in order to hammer home the truth that Christ and Christ alone is the source of all spiritual knowledge that matters and is worth having, end quote. I love this. The false teachers were trying to claim a corner of secret knowledge that only the spiritually elite could attain to. They were robbing these Christians of their spiritual riches, of their wealth in Christ, of their assurance by devaluing and diminishing Christ and drawing their attention to other peripheral matters. And Paul says, Colossians, I'm praying and agonizing that you realize what you have in Christ. Because once you understand what you have in Christ, then you will realize that God is not selling you short. Because verse 3 says, In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God has not, is not selling you short, Colossians. You don't need to look elsewhere. In Christ are all of the treasures. They're hidden in Christ. I love this word treasure here in verse 3. It has the idea of a treasure box. A treasure box in which cherished valuables are kept. And the treasures of which Paul speaks here are are defined for us as wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge is found in Christ. But listen, not just any wisdom and knowledge... Not just any wisdom and knowledge. Paul says in verse 3, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He uses a definite article. The. In other words, Paul makes wisdom and knowledge specific and definite. The wisdom and knowledge which is above any other claim to knowledge and to wisdom. Listen. World philosophies and religions can claim all the wisdom and the knowledge that they want. It is foolishness apart from Christ. Christian science can claim the latest innovative discoveries concerning the origin of things, but it is foolishness apart from Christ. The intellectual, sophisticated yuppies on the most popular TV talk shows and radio shows can claim to to the inside scoop on all of the latest knowledge and wisdom and pontificate about the greatest things that none of us can even understand. It matters nothing apart from Christ. The most world-renowned philosophers and so-called scholars of our day can claim all wisdom and all knowledge. And it matters nothing apart from Christ, beloved. Because if those answers have nothing to do with the God of the Bible or with Christ, the only Lord and Savior of the world, then none of it is true knowledge and wisdom, but foolishness and ultimately leads to futility, even if it sounds really, really good. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. In Christ. I would say to you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, 
You need to realize that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. You can look for truth somewhere else, but you won't find that truth that leads to the salvation of your soul. You will waste your whole life trying to find truth apart from Christ, outside of Christ, and you will get to the end of your life on your deathbed, and you will realize, I've wasted my life. I've wasted my life. And even then, God is more than able to save you. You can look for truth everywhere you wish. For as long as you wish, trying to lie to yourself that you will find truth somewhere, some way, somehow. But the truth that saves is only found in Christ, who is the truth. And He paves the way for all wisdom and knowledge. The truth is found in none other than a person. A wondrous person, is He not? Not a thing, a place, a philosophy, etc., The salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God is found only in Christ, the only Lord and Savior of the world. And that salvation is applied to you when you turn from your sins and you trust Christ. My friend, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ, the glorious Christ, the Redeemer. You need not look elsewhere. For we who are believers, what confidence, what assurance that all knowledge and wisdom is found in Christ. Beloved, we can get so intimidated or discombobulated by astute or or sophisticated so-called scholars on talk shows who seem full of knowledge and wisdom. Can I tell you this? Apart from Christ, they are fools. Fools. It matters not how profound or unattainable a particular world religion may seem, if they do not acknowledge Christ as the only God and Redeemer of mankind, then they are fools. And so is their philosophy. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1 In Christ are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our God is revealed in the person and the work of Christ. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 4 says? That we can see God's glory in the very face of Christ. Salvation, wisdom, knowledge are found in Christ. Not a thing, not a place, not a philosophy or some world religion, beloved. In Christ are found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's loving concern... For these Colossians is shown in his struggle. A struggle that is very real. It is very heartfelt. His loving concern is shown in his genuine desire for them. That they would be encouraged. That they would walk in loving unity. A unity based upon a deep-seated conviction of the truth. That is ultimately rooted in Christ's person and his all-sufficiency for all things. Now what is Paul's motivation in saying all of this? What motivates him? That's our third point. The motivation of Paul's concern in verse 4. He says in verse 4, I say this, and what he's pointing back to is what he just said concerning Christ. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. In other words, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be deceived. The word delude means to lead astray by false reasoning here. 
It has the idea of subtle, crafty deception or delusion. You know, false teaching is not always so obvious, is it? In fact, the most effective type of false teaching sounds very good to undiscerning ears precisely because it is so man-centered and it makes you feel really good about yourself. Paul highlights the subtlety of false teaching when he says, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, fast talk, smooth speech, slippery speech meant to cause you to stumble, designed to lead you away from your beliefs concerning Christ and His all-sufficiency. This is crafty, subtle error that moves you away from Christ rather than toward Christ. Beloved, The church will always have to stand firm in the truth and stand against error in every single generation. It is every believer's job to do that. It is every pastor's job. It is every elder's job. It is every single Christian's job to stand firm against error. It's a continual battle. Paul constantly warned of false teachers who will arise from within and enter in from without. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he said to the Ephesian elders, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And listen to this. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He doesn't say nice guys, does he? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Gee, Paul, why are you such a stickler about protecting the flock? Why are you getting worked up about this? Not only there in Acts 20, but even in Galatians, he pronounces anathema. To those who, who are the false teachers or the Judaizers. He renders them to destruction in light of the fact that they're preaching a, a different gospel. Other than the one that was delivered to the Galatians. Why does he get all worked up? You know why? Because savage wolves don't spare the flock. They tear up the flock, beloved. They harm the flock. They are perverse, twisted They strive to draw people away, Christians, after them to follow them rather than pointing people to the chief shepherd who is the glorious, exalted Christ. Nothing gets under my skin, personally, more than when wolves lead the the people of God astray. Nothing ruffles my feathers more than when people attack the truth and in attacking the truth seek to lead the sheep astray. And can I say this to you? Nothing should ruffle your feathers more than when people attack the truth concerning Christ and lead your fellow brothers and sisters astray. This is why we are a Bible-centered church. Listen, we don't care if the Bible is no longer as relevant, quote-unquote, in our culture to certain people. We don't care about that. If the common view is that it is a dead book of religion of tradition, full of cutesy little morals and nothing else? That is not what we believe. Oh no. We remind people, beloved, that the Bible contains, listen to me, the objective, undeniable truth of God. That God still speaks and forever will speak. 
That the Bible is not irrelevant. That the final word is God's in His Word, the Bible. That every human being, past, present, and future, will give an account to a glorious and holy God, whether you believe it right now or you don't. That's where everything is heading. And yet this loving God has provided a way of escaping His just wrath for your sins. In the person and sin-bearing sacrifice of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that whoever believes in Christ should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the message that we proclaim, beloved. That's the message that we proclaim. So Paul's motivation is to protect them from dangerous, destructive, false teaching that comes in the form, in all forms and shapes and sizes, and particularly in this letter, from teaching that detracts them from Christ as the supreme one and as the all-sufficient one for all matters of their sanctification. Well, we have seen the struggle, the desire, the motivation of Paul's loving concern. And finally... The affirmation of Paul's concern in verse 5. The affirmation of Paul's concern. Notice what he says there. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Though Paul is deeply concerned for them, as we've seen, he affirms them, he commends them, he expresses his confidence that even in the midst of opposition in the form of false teaching that attacks the sufficiency of Christ, they are seeking to stand firm. He has never physically met them, but in spirit he is with them. And he rejoices here in verse 5 because of two things in particular. Notice, one, because of their good discipline, of their good discipline. The imagery here is a, is a military one. It is of orderly ranks of soldiers. You have seen when soldiers march, they refuse to break rank with one another, even when being attacked or opposed. They stand tightly shoulder to shoulder to one another. Paul says, I rejoice that you are standing shoulder to shoulder, even amidst the opposition of these false teachers, these detractors. I rejoice. Secondly, he rejoices because of the stability of their faith in Christ. It is beautiful. Though they are under attack, and Paul and Epaphras are deeply concerned, Paul commends them, he affirms them for the stability of their faith in Christ. And that word stability also pictures military language. It speaks of a firm, solid front against opposition. These believers are standing firm in their faith. Not faith in self, but notice, faith in Christ. Because when our faith is fixed upon Christ, then it is solid. He is our sure foundation, our solid rock, who is unshakable and immovable. Well, they are stable in their faith in Christ, even though they're struggling. So Paul commends and affirms them. The very desire that he expressed for their unity and love in verse 2 is what they are striving for indeed in the power of the Spirit, according to verse 5. And Paul wants them to know he's rejoicing in the fact that they're striving and seeking to be faithful. We would do well, beloved, to put this into practice as well. That as we strive to treasure Christ individually and together, that we, would, that we would exhort one another, yes, and come alongside of one another, but that we would couple that with affirmation and commendation for one another. 
We do that in our homes, do we not? It's a good principle to live out in the home toward your spouse, not just focusing on the negatives and the exhortations, but affirming the evidences of grace in her life or in his life. We do that with our children, lest they become discouraged, not only exhorting them towards the right things and challenging them to continue to pursue Christ, but also comforting them and encouraging them and affirming them when they are walking in obedience and, and, and affirming the evidences of the grace of God. It's the same thing in the church, beloved. Affirmation. Affirmation. Well, Paul lo- Paul's loving concern for these Colossians should be our mutual concern for one another, beloved. That we would be people who walk in loving unity and that we would see Christ rightly. We should be praying that our hearts would not be directed away from Christ to the peripheral things of life. That Christ would come to have first place in everything, in our actual subjective experience, in the way that we live our life. That he who redeemed us would be our greatest treasure together. And we are in this together, are we not? Until the coming of Christ. Listen, when you have a church focused upon Christ, then there's no problem, no conflict, no challenges that should ever come between us. Whereby we can't forgive one another and reconcile and move forward amidst the difficulties for the sake of treasuring Christ together, beloved. For the sake of His great name. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father... You are the glorious one. You are our holy God. You are the one like no other. You are the one who is righteous and just. You are the one who has redeemed us and reconciled us to yourself in and through the death and resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we are here, Lord. You have saved us that we would treasure Christ individually in our hearts, in the way that we live our lives and the priorities that we carry out not only as individuals in isolation, but corporately, together. You have called us to treasure Christ as a community of believers. Help us, Lord, that the struggle of Paul would be ours for one another. That his desire for his brethren, even brethren that he he had never met personally, would be our desire. That our motivation would be to protect one another, Lord, from from falsehood. And from anything that would detract our brethren away from Christ and from his infinite worth and glory. And Lord, help us to be people who commend one another, who affirm one another. That even as we challenge one another, as we come alongside of one another and we exhort one another, pointing one another to the obedience of Christ, that we would also be quick to affirm and commend one another for the evidences of your grace in each of our lives. We ask you all of these things, Lord, in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.